Good morning. If you would, grab a Bible. Let's turn to Galatians 6. Galatians 6. We'll begin in that place, in this part of our worship, where we open up the Bible and study together. Galatians 6. It is good to see you this morning. We have a much better crowd than we've been having because we actually are, are all here. Uh, it's good to see you, and uh, I am thankful for uh, this little degree of normality that we can have uh, at this time. But thank you so much for uh, your presence. We have visitors here. Thank you for being here. We want you to know that you're welcome, and we are glad to see you. And uh, we are encouraged by your presence and the fact that you've chosen to be here to worship God with us. Galatians 6, I want to read verse 2 through verse 5. Galatians 6 and verse 2, the text says, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Each one, he says, will have to bear his own load. There is a tennis player named Fabio Fagnini. He is obviously Italian. And uh, a few years ago, he had a bad day in the U.S. Open. During the match, he had three separate temper tantrums. He called the umpire some awful names. He is later fined for his behavior. And a couple of days after all this happened, he gave this apology. He said, I would first apologize to you fans and the referee about what happened today. It's just been a very bad day. But this does not forgive the behavior in the match. Although I'm a hothead, and though in my opinion, having been right in most circumstances, I made a mistake... But then at the end of the day, it's only a game of tennis. So what do you think about that apology? I guess it's an apology, right? So let me, let me recap for you. He says, you know, I'm having a really bad day. And I'm kind of a hothead. And, and really, I'm right. In most of these situations, I was right. And, you know, but, but I made a mistake. But, I mean, it's only tennis. So why are we all so upset? I single out Mr. Fagnini's apology because it represents, in my view, a lot of apologies that we hear this day, especially in the sports world and the political world, where, where people know that they're supposed to apologize, but they don't really know how to do it because they're not really that sorry. And so they say a lot of things, but usually they end up digging the hole worse because they end up saying some things that are a little bit insensitive. So... We say things like, I'm sorry that you got so offended, or I'm sorry that you took it that way, or I'm sorry, but it's only tennis, so kind of get over it, which is not really an apology at all. Well, we've been looking this year at the idea of house rules, that is, principles for Christian homes that are not just principles about how we live with children and with spouses, but are, are principles that begin in their foundation at home and then become an integral part of our Christian character. And so these are some of the things that we've talked about this year. Uh, we talked about in January about how home is a safe place, uh, how we respect each other, how we tell the truth, how we speak with love. And then last month we talked about no gossip allowed. And so I want to focus and in, in kind of continuing that on some of the things that this kind of apology issue brings up, I want to talk about the broad question about how we take responsibility. And I want us to see that in a Christian home, we learn a vital Christian value, which is the idea that we take responsibility for our lives and for our actions. And yes, part of that means admitting when we mess up. 
and learning how to say I'm sorry without blaming the other person. Learning how to take responsibility for our actions. So I want to just take this in three directions this morning. And the first is this. We take responsibility in the sense that we say, I am responsible for my work. And that's what brings us here to Galatians 6. In Galatians 6, Paul is concerned that we might have the idea that we are in some way tagging along with other people's work. So in Galatians 6 and verse 3, look at this again with me. Galatians 6 and 3, he says, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. So he says, each one of us has our own personal responsibilities and things that only we can do. We have a work and a sphere in which we can influence others and do what we're here to do. But Paul is concerned that we'll start thinking more of ourselves than we really are, and we'll begin to start start taking credit for what other people are doing. And we begin to think we are more than we are. And so he says, look at verse 5 with me. He says, for each will have to bear his own load. And what I take that to mean, when he says each one is going to bear his own load, is the idea that that there are some things that only I can do for myself and only you can do for yourself. So while in verse 2 he said we bear one another's burdens and we help each other when things are overwhelming, even when I help you, there are some things I cannot do for you and some things you cannot do for me. Each one of us has to bear our own load. So for example, I cannot obey God for you. When God tells us that he wants us to be baptized for the forgiveness of our sins, I can't do that for you. That's something you must choose to do. If, if I'm going to be self-controlled, you can't be self-controlled for me. You may really want to be. You may know exactly what I need to do. You may tell me. You may correct me when I'm wrong. But at the end of the day, I have to bear that load. No one can do that for me. I am responsible for those obligations. In that sense that I am responsible for my work, the things that I must do, That sense of personal responsibility cannot start too young. That our children need to be learning to be responsible for their work as soon as possible. Turn with me over to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We talked about this a little bit a couple of weeks ago on uh, Wednesday night when we talked about admonishing the idol. In 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 10... Paul wants the disciples in Thessalonica to learn this sense that you have things you need to take care of, your own work. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 10, he says, For that is indeed what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So he says there in verse 11, particularly, live quietly, mind your own affairs, work with your hands. One of the versions, I think it might be the New King James, actually has here, mind your own business. Which, you know, that's something that we used to say on the grade school playground, you know, mind your own business, as in leave me alone. But here he says, no, mind your own business, as in do your business, do your work. You need to take care of your work. Because that's a work no one else can do for you. And especially the issue with idleness, and you see it in this text too, is that when I don't take care of my work, I end up being a burden on someone else. 
because I can't provide for myself and do what I'm supposed to do, somebody has to in some way fill in those gaps. That's why he says in verse 12, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. That is not God's plan. God's plan is not that we are dependent on everybody else. It's that we take care of our own work. So what do I mean here by work? Well, I think it's obvious from this text that I mean at least in part that we take care of our own physical needs. That is my responsibility in one way or another. I am responsible for providing for myself and being willing to work in order to do that. Now, I might receive something from someone else. I may be given things, but it doesn't change my responsibility to take care of my work. I also mean when I talk about being responsible for my work that there is spiritual work that is my duty. I have obligations to God to obey and to serve God. And other people can talk to me about that, but they cannot do it for me. My parents cannot do it for me. My spouse cannot do it for me. It is my work. I am responsible. For many of us in this room, our responsibility includes leadership in different realms. Maybe that's I'm a husband and a father. Maybe that's I'm an elder. Maybe that's I'm a boss at work. But I have a leadership responsibility. And in that work... Other people can encourage me or teach me or guide me or correct me. But at the end of the day, it's my work. It's my responsibility and no one can do it for me. So they might help me, but they cannot take it over for me. So all of us have spheres and we have a job that we are responsible for doing. We have gifts that we are responsible for shepherding and using. We have relationships with people and we are responsible for how we manage those. All of those say, I am responsible for the things that belong to me. That is a principle for Christian homes. So I want to say a word here to parents. Parents, we can begin the process of teaching this principle at very young ages. We can teach children, even at very young ages, to have a set of things that are their responsibilities. Things that they take care of things that they have control over. Maybe that's just their toys or their books or their rooms. Maybe it's a small set of rules that they need to keep. But what we are teaching is not follow the rules. It's not keep things clean. We are teaching, you have a work, you need to do it. And sure, as parents, we could do that work for them, of course. In fact, one of the most frustrating things about having really young children is that you end up doing more work when you ask them to do the work. I know it doesn't get the the house much cleaner when you ask them to help cleaning. I know, I've been there. But the issue is not how long it takes. The issue is what are we teaching? Are we teaching responsibility for our work? And then as our children grow, we give them more responsibility and more work. We try to teach them the value of doing a really good job, the satisfaction that comes from that. Sometimes we teach them that privileges are hinged on meeting our responsibilities, on you doing your work so then you're able to do something else. We're teaching our children to grow trustworthy and dependable. And and as they grow, the responsibility, the work begins to grow. Maybe they take a job. Maybe they begin to take care of a car. Maybe they're taking care of the yard. Maybe there's some responsibility of service they're doing. Whatever it is, we're, we're slowly building and adding because we want our children to learn. I'm responsible for my work. But, but this is more than children. This is also a principle for adult Christians that we need to say, I have things that I must do. No one will do them for me. 
And as tempting as it might be to say, well, nobody is here looking over my shoulder and making me, we need to take from these passages the sense of responsibility that my work is mine and I need to take responsibility for it. Second, I am responsible for my actions. So I can control nobody but me, but I must control me. And nobody else can do that for me. And I have to be willing to take responsibility for the things that I do and their consequences. So we're here in 1 Thessalonians 4. Look up a few verses in verse 3. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 3. It says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So he says specifically, God's will for each one of us is that we be holy. And that has specific applications in this text. It is about sexual immorality. In verse 4, he says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. That we know how to control our sexual impulses is the idea here. Who is responsible for that? Who's responsible for controlling our sexual impulses? We are. I am responsible for my actions. And other people might try to control that for me, but I am the one ultimately who must make the decisions, right or wrong, about the things that I do with my body. So if I live in the passion of lust like Gentiles, as he talks about here, then I am failing in my responsibility. And Paul is very clear, I'll answer to God for that. And we are rejecting God who gave us his spirit. But the fault will be all mine. But that doesn't mean just because I'm responsible for my actions does not mean that my actions only affect me. Certainly, my actions affect other people. In fact, just talking about sexual immorality, that's going to affect far more than me. And how I control myself in that is going to affect a wide range of people all around me. In fact, that's part of what Paul is concerned about. Look at verse 6 again. In verse 6, he says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Now, that, that sentence, that verse, makes me wonder what was going on in Thessalonica that Paul is so concerned about, that they're wronging one another. I wonder if there were relationships going on in the church that were inappropriate. And he's saying, you guys need to control yourselves and quit wronging each other about it. My, affection, my actions affect other people, but I'm the one who has the ultimate responsibility. So let me... Let me get to the point there. What that means is there is never a situation, we're talking about sexual immorality here, there is never a situation where the temptation is too strong, where the woman is too beautiful, where the man is too handsome, where it's somebody else's fault. Never. Because I am the one who must control my body in holiness and honor. And if I don't do that, then I am responsible for my actions. They may hurt other people, but the responsibility lies with me. I am responsible. Well, let me say it this way. I am not responsible for, for example, what women wear or do not wear. I am responsible 
for my eyes and my thoughts and my body. I can certainly wish that women would dress more appropriately, and I can certainly encourage Christian women to dress appropriately. But I still have to control myself no matter what, no matter what people are wearing or not wearing. And in the same way, Christian women cannot control what men are going to do or say or think about them sexually. That's not their responsibility. What they can do is control what they wear and how they present themselves and what they show the world about who they are. You see, one way or another, I can only be responsible for my actions, but I am responsible for my actions and those of no one else. Let's turn over to Matthew chapter 5. So we've seen that in sexual immorality. I think the same principle is also true when you talk about anger. Matthew chapter 5. This is Matthew 5 and verse 21. This is Jesus speaking, Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 and verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus starts by talking about murder and then transfers over to talking about anger. So has anyone ever made you angry? I think we've all been there, right? We all know what that feels. Anger is not in itself wrong, and even Jesus' statement focuses on what we do with that anger. You know, do we say raka and you fool? Are we acting out of that anger? And he says these things, they're not murder, but they're in the same class as murder. In fact, anger might lead to murder. But did you notice the question that I asked? Has anyone ever made you angry? Even in our language, do you hear it? It's not really our fault. They made me angry. They did it. Even in our language, we do some blame shifting and some responsibility shifting. I'm mad, but it's their fault. If they would act better, I wouldn't have to be mad. As if I'm not responsible. So let's be clear. Anger is not in itself wrong. Jesus gets angry. Lots of Bible characters get angry. But what I am responsible for is what I do when I'm angry. My actions out of that anger. My words, my treatment of others, my bitterness and refusal to let anger go, my raising of my voice, the things I say and do are my responsibility. So what that means is just like with sexual immorality, there is never a situation... Please hear me. There is never a situation where the temptation is just too strong. The person is just too annoying or too infuriating. The insult is too harsh. That I just must do something rash. There is never a situation where I am not responsible for my response. I am responsible for my actions when I am angry. So Jesus is warning us. Be careful about what you do when you're angry. Just because you don't murder someone doesn't mean you're in control and doesn't mean you won't if you don't get a handle on responsibility for your own anger. So I want you to see that pattern. The pattern is I am responsible for my actions. I am responsible in every part of my life. I'm responsible for my words. Jesus says every Idle word a man speaks, he'll give account of it in the day of judgment. By your words you'll be justified, by your words you'll be condemned. I am responsible for my words. Now I can't always control the situations I'm in and the words I might want to say, but I am responsible for the words that I do say. 
I'm responsible for my money. Not how much money I have, but what I do with my money. For good or for bad, I am responsible. I am responsible for my free time. Do I redeem the time because the days are evil? What I do, good or bad, I'm responsible for. So I can't control everything about how much money I have or everything about how much free time I have or everything about the situations I'm in. But I can always control myself. I am responsible for my actions. Parents, we can teach this from a very young age. We can teach our children that we have expectations for their actions that then have corresponding consequences when those actions come about. So when our children are very young, we can talk about how do we address mom and dad or how do we treat mom and dad. Like, for example, when when children are very young, we might say, we don't hit mom and dad. That's a pretty simple rule, right? Okay, hit mom and dad, there's consequences. We don't like the consequences, but guess what? If you do the action, you get the consequence. Or how do we react when there are other children around? How do we treat them? How do we share with them? That kind of thing. And then as children grow, the expectations grow. We expect kindness to people who are different from us. We expect our children to remember the rules of the house even when parents are not right there. We expect a certain amount of discipline in the classroom when they start to go to school. And as children grow older into teenagers, we expect even more. There are certain actions that are going to bring certain consequences. Words you say, places you go, things you do to people that are going to have a consequence because what we are teaching and all of that, yes, part of it is about character and and teaching character and forming character, but part of it is about every decision. Our children need to be learning. This has consequences that are your fault, and you are choosing the life you want by your actions. If you want to be a certain kind of person, keep going down that road because every action is going to have certain consequences, and you are responsible for those. All right, well, the third thing is, and this will take us back to our tennis player. Our third thing is, I am responsible for my messes. So what what we have built here is the idea that that I have a work and I have certain spheres in which I work, and then I have actions that I'm going to do, and sometimes I'm going to miss the mark. Sometimes I'm going to fail. And now, because we know who is responsible for those other things, we know who's responsible when we fail. And that is an important principle in the Bible and in Christian living, that we be able to acknowledge when we mess up and be willing to clean up, or at least as best we can, take responsibility for our messes. Let's go to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, you'll see David here. David has made a big mess. This is uh, Psalm 51. It's a psalm written after David has gone into Bathsheba and committed adultery with her, and then He has conspired to have her husband murdered to try to cover it up. And then he is rebuked by Nathan the prophet and finally realizes that he has sinned against Jehovah. And uh, so he pens this psalm. And I want you to hear, uh, keep in mind what we talked about earlier about the, the man, the tennis player. And then maybe compare it a little bit to what you read here in terms of admitting and taking responsibility for doing wrong. Psalm 51 and verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, 
so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. This is a man who has really come to terms with his sin. He is sorry. Full stop. He expresses that in so many different ways. First of all, I just want to point out, he says, I sinned. And he says it over and over again. He doesn't say, you know, I had an error in judgment. You know, I made a mistake. I slipped up. You know, nobody's perfect. This is not about everybody else. This is not about PR. This is about David and God. And he says, I have done wrong. He says, I am broken. I am responsible. There is nowhere to hide from my guilt. All I can do is ask for mercy. He says, I feel so guilty that I feel like I've been guilty from the moment I was born. He says, I'm so overwhelmed. I feel like my bones have been broken. My heart is dirty and I need you to clean it. My spirit is warped and I need you to straighten it out. This is a man who says, there's something seriously wrong and it's all my fault. That is taking responsibility for his mess. He looks at his life and he says, I've got nobody to blame but me. Turn with me over to Daniel chapter 9. Here's another example, Daniel 9, of a man who has learned to take responsibility for a mess that probably most of us would say, this isn't really Daniel's fault. Daniel chapter 9. But I want you to hear how there is none of this distinction between what he has done and what he deserves and everything else. He is just taking responsibility. Daniel chapter 9. We're going to read beginning in verse 1. Daniel 9 and verse 1. It says, In the first year of Darius the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, Open shame, as it is this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. He goes on. You get the feel. Daniel is saying, I'm a part two. We have sinned. 
And he doesn't just say, you know what, forgive us our many sins. You know, like, let's just do a little blanket statement. He specifies, this is what we did. We rebelled, and then you, you sent prophets, and we ignored them. And he, he uses over and over many terms for the different ways we disobeyed God. You deserve good things. We deserve bad things. Now, it's easy to read that as if Daniel's just kind of laying it on really thick. But I don't think that's what's happening. These are the words of a man who knows his heart is broken over his sin and the sins of his people. We're in this situation where we're in a foreign land and everything has fallen to pieces and, and it's our fault. We deserve it. So what you're seeing in these passages, whether it's David or Daniel, is part of a large biblical witness about how we take responsibility for our messes. The Bible is full of these statements where people say, and I just imagine it's in that quiet whisper, I have sinned. Or as David says, I have done very foolishly. Or as Simon the sorcerer says, pray to the Lord for me. Brethren, we must learn this. We need this. That there is a spirit among God's people that does not hedge our bets. It does not qualify our prayers and confessions. It just says, I am wrong. And I'm sorry. Now that is a far cry from our world. Our world says things like, well, I'm sorry you took it that way. I'm sorry you got offended. Or sometimes we'll, in our world, we'll, we'll say things like, well, I said I was sorry. What more do you want from me? As if that's the spirit of someone who's done wrong. And someone commits adultery and then they say, I told you I shouldn't have had that affair, but how long are you going to hold this against me? There's a danger here that we begin to offer excuses and justifications for our sins. Yeah, I shouldn't have done it, but, but I was under a lot of stress. Or like our tennis player, I'm just a hothead. It's just what I do. It's just the way I was raised. There's a danger that instead of taking responsibility, we begin to blame other people. You know, I had a rough home life. That's why I turned out the way I did. The biblical example of this is all the time Saul, Aaron say, the people made me do it. You know the people. Had a brother one time tell me, if they hadn't made me so angry, I wouldn't have had to throw a brick at them. Not my fault. You shouldn't have taken it that way. You know, I know it was wrong, but you kind of had it coming. See, what we end up doing is saying, it's not my responsibility. Yeah, there's a mess here, but you need to take some too. There's a danger that we will begin to feel justified if our intent was good. You know, sometimes we mess up unwittingly. And we say, I didn't mean to. And we need to remember that messes are still messes. Sin is still sin, even if we didn't intend it to be. We live in a political world where everybody wants to blame somebody. You know, even when there's a virus, we want to blame somebody. And nobody wants to take blame. 
We live in a world where apologies are done for the optics. We live in a world where when people accuse us of something, instead of saying, yeah, you're right, we attack them back. Is there a place for us to just say, you know, I didn't know that. I didn't realize. I made a mistake. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. Now, that's not pleasant for anybody. Nobody enjoys that. But unless we're perfect, that's reality. And God's people need to be a people who know how to take responsibility when they make a mess. And I am suggesting that that attitude of humility and admission and apology should be learned young at home. When we break the rules, we admit it. We don't argue. We don't blame brothers and sisters. We don't get mad at the parents for the rules being dumb. We say, I'm sorry. I messed up. Yes, I did it. Now, sometimes that's literal. Sometimes that means we need to teach our children to say, yes, I spilt that. Yes, I left that out. Yes, I let the dog out of the yard. Yes, I did it. But sometimes it's about breaking parental rules. Sometimes it's about doing things that we know are wrong. Whatever the scenario, parents need to have as a priority teaching our children to take responsibility and ownership when they mess up. That's a life skill. And then, as they get older and the stakes get higher, more and more we need this. More and more they need to be able to say, I really made a big mistake. I really shouldn't have gone there. I really shouldn't have been with that person. I really regret this. And to be able to know that parents are going to be there. Yes, I will help you to do what I can to clean up the mess. But first, you must take responsibility. This is on you. We take responsibility for our messes. And parents... Perhaps the best way we can teach this is by living in ourselves. Because our children are going to see us making messes too. Where we make mistakes in judgment, we say things we shouldn't, we step over the line. Are we able to go to them and say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that, I shouldn't have done that. To show them, to model for them what it is to take responsibility and clean up a mess. We take responsibility and then we act to fix it then we change and do differently then we make real effort to turn things around that is the pattern of responsibility for our messes so this is the house rule we take responsibility and I want to suggest to you that that begins at home and radiates outward you know when we don't take responsibility do you know what happens in a local church We show up in a local church and think that we don't have any responsibility. It's not my work. It's somebody else's work. And you know what? I'm kind of here to sit back and let everybody do for me. And if something goes wrong, well, I just need to look for someone to blame. And in fact, when our relationships break down, we always seem to think that it's somebody else who's doing it. And, you know, if they would just get their act together, I don't know why everybody's against me. Everywhere I go, every situation I'm in, somebody has it out for me. It's always someone else's fault. 
tears apart local churches. And in fact, it tears apart all relationships. When we refuse to take responsibility, we're going to have trouble at work. We're going to have trouble in our homes. We're going to have trouble in our broader society. And of course, we're going to struggle to have unity in a local church. These kinds of problems separate friends and sow discord in families. We need to learn to take responsibility. I started by talking about a tennis player. And that story amuses me because to me, it doesn't seem like that big a deal when you're on TV in a major tennis tournament acting ridiculous and then to admit, hey, I shouldn't have done that. That doesn't seem like a big deal to me. But we need to learn to take responsibility and admit what is our fault and what isn't. And especially for our purposes this morning, I want to remind you that that especially includes the fact that we have sinned against God and that no one else is responsible for that. I know that sometimes we grow up in difficult situations and sometimes there are people surrounding us who are evil and do wrong to us. I know. But when Scripture says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, what it is saying is that all of us are guilty for our own reasons. All of us are responsible for ourselves. And so God has appealed to each one of us, sending Jesus to die for our sins so that each one of us, no matter how we got to that position, can be free from our sins and have hope of eternal life with him. And that's the good news of the gospel. But the gospel is something that no one can obey for you. You are responsible before God. You will stand before him in judgment. You will answer for your own life. The question is, are you right with God this morning? And if you are ready to take responsibility for your own sins and say, I need forgiveness, I need salvation, and to come to Jesus and have his blood to wash away your sins, we'd love nothing more than to help you do that. If you're ready to be baptized into Christ, if you have any need, please come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.